Well, good morning, good evening, or hello, everyone, depending on the uh, on the time zone where you're currently located. Uh, my name is Stark. I'm a member of the Bordeaux Labor Alliance and one of the organizers of this Left Forge podcast. And today I have with me uh, a friend, I would say, and a, and a recently known comrade from Game Workers United. Did I get this right? GWU? Uh, or? Yes. Well, we called um, IWGB Game Workers now. We actually recently rebranded. Interesting, uh, interesting. Would you like to introduce yourself, Dex? Yes, to the yes, audience? of course. Uh, <laughs> hi, uh, my name is Declan Peach. I am the Vice Secretary of the IWGB Game Workers. We are a um, branch of the Independent Workers of Great Britain um, who specialize in unionization for game developers. Uh, and I work as a game designer as my day job. Whoa, whoa, so so interesting. I don't think the gaming industry is something that we often hear about unionization. I mean, traditionally in the United States where we're coming from, when we think of union jobs, we usually think of, you know, car manufacturers, the athletes maybe. Since the NBA, I think all of them are unionized. Or more like police type of jobs, you know? Yeah. But how, how does it feel being unionized in the gaming industry? Do you feel like you are the lone wolf of the pack or...? Um, it, at the start, it was. Um, so mm-hmm. I was actually one of the organisers who started the branch. Um, it Whoa. was uh, it stemmed from a a, a a movement in the US, uh, which was the Game Workers Unite movement, um, back in March of 2018, I believe. Um, and at that point, it was completely unheard of. Uh, nobody in the industry was unionised. Um, and... What happened was some people got together uh, with the help of some uh, labor movements and unions in the U.S. And um, we attended, uh, well, not we, but some people attended uh, a talk at the Game Developers Conference, which is the big, big conference uh, in the U.S. and for all of the world, really, for game devs to talk about various things. And they had a roundtable on the idea of unionization. And it Mm -hmm. very much felt like it was designed to put to bed the idea of unionization. Um, And so what these people did was they wrote a magazine and they handed out flyers and they packed the round table with pro-union voices. So only thing anyone was talking about in GDC of 2018 was, oh my God, everyone wants to unionize. Seriously? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think I actually saw the magazine online. It's the one that has Sonic the Hedgehog on the cover. Yes, yes, yeah, that one. Uh, oh so God. that was the only thing I was talking about. And, and I saw it um, and I thought, oh man, I really want to get involved. And so I've been organizing, I was organizing with them, which led to me uh, starting the work, groundwork for establishing this union branch uh, ever since. Uh, but when we started, um, there was nothing, there was no unionization. The, the the work that I had to do basically just involved going to other unions in the UK and getting game developers together, getting them on like a mailing list and saying, hey, union, I have, I think it was like a mailing list of like 100 game developers or like interested parties. Okay. And we said, we would all like to become unionized, please. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, yeah, it was a weird, it was, it was extremely strange and quite uh, exciting when we started out because it was all of us just together not knowing exactly what we wanted to do other than become unionized and finding out as we were going how to do that. 
Well, I think it must be so difficult. I remember when we when we were preparing for this podcast, you recommended me looking over this book, uh, which was called Marx at the Arcade. Mm-hmm. Do I get it? Yeah. Do I get the title right? And I think one of the arguments the author was trying to make was the fact that uh, gaming industry as a whole, I mean, especially when it emerged in California, was rooted in this hippie culture of this work whenever you feel like culture. Do not necessarily work at specific times of the day, but didn't necessarily say anything about overworking yourself. And when this met a corporate culture, it led to something completely new that was completely out of control of the traditional unions. And it Mm. was quite difficult to even, like, uh, let's say share the union discourse inside of it because those wanted to be out of control. They regarded everything as being, uh, even unions to be controlling of themselves. They wanted to have some kind of autonomy. But we see that over time, you know, since the 70s, 80s or 90s, you know, gaming industry has become something very corporate-like. And I'm very curious if you felt the same way when you were trying to unionize people, that they Uh, wanted to keep this autonomy. Um, It... (sighs) It depends on which companies you speak to, because um, okay. a lot of the smaller studios who we call indies, um, they still have this like hippie-like culture, um, mm-hmm. and everybody wants to be independent. Although those are the ones who, in by and large, are most pro-unionization, to be honest, because uh, interesting, they're the ones who feel less. Um, they they feel less scared of their bosses. I suppose is the Way to say it, um, and it's the cor- yeah the corporate places are the ones that are the worst. But there is definitely this this dichotomy between them. It's, the, it's definitely um, I- I'd say the corporate companies are extremely corporate and have like they've kind of stamped out any of that once independent nature of the of development beyond aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Basically, mm-hmm. the most you get is flexible hours and that's about it um well fascinating but i actually remember reading reading a little story i think about bioware and i think they were preparing to develop anthem or to release anthem mm. and and one of the big problems with that game was that when the developers were asked i think to go to the headquarters of the company they expected to get like i don't know some kind of bonus package what they actually got were t-shirts which it said welcome to crunch and they knew that shit was it was about to go down basically and they were about <laughs> to work work over the schedule and actually this drives me a bit into the question of how is it maybe working in the gaming industry do you have to put a lot of extra hours in there or is it all following a 40 hour work week and business as usual and you go home and have fun with your family and all of this I was talking to a colleague of mine in the union about this recently, um, and the consensus we came to was it very much depends on where you work. Um, okay. The issue, I think the, the bigger issue with crunch that you don't think mm-hmm. about is you don't know it's going to happen. <laughs> uh, like a lot of studios, uh, when, the, when the topic of crunch happens, a lot of studios tell you at the beginning of the project oh yeah if we do all this we will we'll not, we'll not have to do crunch and then you do mm-hmm. <laughs> it gets the three weeks but three months before the end of the project and it's like oh sorry guess we didn't manage properly uh now everyone has to work overtime for free <laughs> um jesus uh, yeah it depends because i spoke i spoke well, obviously because i'm a union organizer in the games industry i know people in lots and lots of different studios all over the industry and 
some have awful stories of crunch and some have never experienced crunch at all. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and a lot of people, like a problem we have in the industry is when people are going between jobs, which is really common because of the nature of projects, um, mm -hmm. people do have to do research that includes, will this company that I'm thinking of going to uh, force me to do unpaid overtime to the point where it will become unhealthy for me? <laughs> you have to do research into that. Fair point. I was actually considering that. I think I'm at the point in life where I'm trying to decide my career for the future. And uh, I think in the past months, I was deeply fascinated by the gaming industry. But one of the core questions that came into my mind was, let's say I might be the crunch on the first, uh, on the first game. Maybe I do crunch on the second game. What if it continues? Will we ever be able to say stop to this? Have you noticed a trend maybe in the industry since you have been a, gaming, uh, a game industry organizer? That um, people have started saying no to crunch. Yeah, uh, I would say <laughs> very much <laughs> as as a um, I think as a reaction to like the concept of unionization and the threat of unionization in the industry. Crunch has definitely decreased quite quite a lot, especially as people have also not just unionization, but as people have like become aware of the concept of crunch and that they don't want it uh, <laughs> as consumers. Um, I'd say it is a thing that is decreasing, um, but it's still, it, it, there is still an issue, um, especially in say the U S where it, uh, it can happen in certain studios, um, for, uh, not even just the U S anywhere in the world, for example, say CD project red right now, uh, mm -hmm. we're all talking about that at the moment because they're very, obviously doing crunch and being very open about it. Uh, and it's, it's interesting seeing them talk about that and everyone say, Oh no, that this is terrible. Uh, because years ago that would have gone completely under the radar and we would only have spoken about it months mm -hmm. after the fact, uh, because the industry doesn't know, but because they have to keep delaying their game and announcing it, it becomes extremely obvious the outside world that they must be doing way more hours than they should be doing i think that's a fair point i think uh talking about city project right and maybe we can we can discuss a bit what has been happening recently with cyberpunk 2070 mm. i remember jason schreier being very vocal about his company which is uh i think is a very dear company to the heart of many eastern europeans since it's mm -hmm. based in poland it's highly valued, its games maybe are recognized internationally, yet there is this underlying aspect of it which has been seen not only in Cyberpunk, but I think in Witcher 3 as well, the culture of crunch and how people openly embrace this. Yeah, it's... Shire um, actually did mention this and how, well, the, the discourse that was try they were trying to pass was that the employees were embracing it and Shire was able to prove pretty definitively that that was not true. <laughs> they were not consulted on it whatsoever. Uh, it, it, to me, as an industry insider and somebody who understands how the process of making games works, it very much seems like CD Projekt Red is a very badly managed company. Um, crunch crunch as, a, as a thing, uh, like as a concept, happens because of bad time management. Like, mm -hmm. Games as... Uh, as products are insanely complicated and it's very easy to lose track of a project. But 
companies are getting better and better at not doing that. But in CD Projekt Reds, uh, for example, they are continuing to um, tell their employees that they need to do, they need to crunch, and that they need to uh, push the release date back. And there was a thing where I was reading about how um, they were they were prototyping mechanics, like making mechanics. I think one of them was like wall climbing and like wall running in the game, and they would prototype that to its completion. And then say, "Oh no, it's not fun," and scrap it. You, you don't do that in the industry. <laughs> like, <laughs> th- that's that's terrible management. Uh, you would prototype something very, very, very roughly, uh, usually. But it sounded like they were prototyping something to its absolute completion with art assets and everything. This this says to me that a company is not being run with timekeeping and like avoiding crunch in mind. It's also interesting to see from their from their Twitter account, uh, who always the person who set, announces that the game is being delayed is surprised that the game is being delayed, which okay. which says to me that they don't communicate with their community managers, and that the well, community managers might not actually know what's happening. Um, that's a- I think that's a fair take at CD Projekt Red, and uh, and what's so interesting about it is that we bring it to the conversation a Polish company, which is not American, and I think we we see how crunch in the gaming industry is not only an American or let's say even British concept, but it mm. is spanned across the video game industry. If I if I'm able to bring in a little argument, I was actually just before this I was reading the book by Jason Schreier, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. Oh yeah, and I've also read it. You've read it. Well, actually, what do you think of it? I really love it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I really liked um, the chapter about the guy who made Stardew Valley. Um, and oh, how... I haven't gotten to that. Oh, it's so good. He, so he seems like such a nice guy, but he was so insanely dedicated to it. And the only reason the game happened was because his girlfriend basically just funded him to be jobless and do nothing but make this game for a year. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, but it's it's funny because he talks about how, like, the actual guy. He talks about how, like, oh yeah, some days I'll just like get a creative block and just not do anything. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just about this reminds me a bit of a of a Marx and Engels story. You know, Marx writing the Capital and Engels sponsoring him with the fat cash he had from the industry. Yeah. <laughs> A bit of a leftist reference. But I brought that book into discussion uh, actually because I think Jason Schreier tries to, doesn't necessarily take crunch for granted, which I think uh, reading some articles from, uh, let's say, the late 2010s has mm. been all kind of taken for granted. You know, we must do crunch because it's such a creative industry and so on. I think Jason Schreier actually tries to understand a bit better, you know, why it's actually coming uh, into existence. And you've said it very clearly with the case of CD Projekt Red, uh, poor management. Mm. I think when they were actually discussing Pillar of Eternity, the game that was made by Obsidian, they were, uh, he was bringing into conversation the, the idea that funding can also make it very hard for you to avoid crunch. In yes. the sense that it might be very unstable and a company such as Microsoft might pull the money plug very very easily and you'll be left with like god knows what yeah no um i've spoken to a few people about this before about how it's not it's not just management but i guess it is it's management from the people who control the money uh 
when a publisher is funding a project, what they will try and do is maximize profits. And what that often means is publishers have realized that they can tell a company to make a game in less time than it actually takes to make it because that's cheaper. <laughs> and <laughs> as soon as some publishers started doing this, others have realized they can, and they too have started doing it. Uh, and so what, what constantly happens in the cycle of crunch is publishers will constantly um, give project deadlines that are just unachievable without it. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. That seems a bit sad. I mean, let's now take a little bit of a step back. And I'm very curious, before you've joined the gaming industry, if you are aware of those mechanisms, or you, as I, as I bought into previous license, had a dream of becoming a game developer maybe since the age of 12 or 13, I always thought it looked like heaven, you know, everything <laughs> was like shiny, tiny, you didn't have to work overtime, you were able to deliver things on time. Did you buy into the same myth? Or? Uh, I hadn't thought about it too much until I was like in university doing it, to be honest. I, I, went, I went to the university to do game development um, only just because it seemed cool and I hadn't really thought about what I wanted to do with my life. Um, <laughs> and it was only, it, it seemed really cool uh, in the first like year or so. And then about halfway through my second year, my professors were talking about it and saying like, oh yeah, they, they were going through the concept of crunch and how it was like a thing that I might have to deal with. Um, and it was, it, it only really dawned on me at that point uh, that uh, this was a genuine thing that still happened and I might have to, uh, ha I might have to do it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, before that point, I'd, uh, I yeah, I I hadn't really considered the possibility of crunch, um, and as soon as I had, I started thinking about how I could avoid it and what I could do. The answer I came up with was I was going to found a union, <laughs> <laughs> and that might be the right answer, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's how it was. But also, I'm very curious how this myth of working in the gaming industry seen as, as a heaven type of job without like necessarily disadvantages, I think it's still very much propagated nowadays. I know a couple of friends of mine younger than me mm. that want to work, for example, at, I don't know, Ubisoft or Rockstar Games or fund their own independent studio. And they always never take into consideration this aspect of uh, no paid time, overtime, basically, or crunch or anything like that. Mm. How do you think this myth it keeps being propagated. Um, I, I, don't, I genuinely think it's just because crunch um, as a concept isn't talked about much outside of industry circles. I think mm -hmm. as, a, um, as a movement and as an effect, it, it's, it is happening more and more, and we ha are having these conversations more. Yeah. Um, but I think for a lot of people, not many... If you, if you read any of like the gaming forums... <laughs> <laughs> like people who are involved in development, they have no idea how it actually works. Usually, and I think it creates this um, not just from the people talking about it, but from the people reading this, it creates this false idea of what the uh, the industry is like. I don't think there's any one person or like group of people who are consciously creating this idea. Uh, I just think that there's so many people talking about the industry, not knowing how the industry works that uh, everybody just gets the, the wrong end of the stick. Fair point. Actually, if I'm, if I'm able to bring it up right now, I think 
there has been one article which has been extremely, I would say, critical in my own understanding of the gaming industry. I only, I only stumbled upon this recently, and it's actually the one that I think is called EA The Human Story, published mm. by EA underscore spouse, which, uh, yeah. uh, which I think is a blog post in which this, uh, this spouse basically describes the situation of her husband, if I'm not mistaken, and how it was working at EA at the time. EA's bright and shiny new corporate trademark is challenge everything. Where this applies is not exactly clear. Churning out an unlicensed football game after another doesn't sound like challenging much of anything to me. It sounds like a money farm. To any EA executive that happens to read this, I have a good challenge for you. How about safe and sane labor practices for the people on whose backs you walk for your millions? Within weeks, production had accelerated into a mild crunch. Eight hours, six days a week, not bad. Months remained until any real crunch would start, and the team was told that this pre-crunch was to prevent a big crunch towards the end. At this point, any other need for a crunch seemed unlikely, as the project was dead on schedule. I don't know how many of the developers bought the explanation for the extended hours. We were new and naive, so we did. The producers even set a deadline. They gave a specific date for the end of the crunch, which was still months away from the title's shipping date, so it seemed safe. That date came and went. And went. And went. When the next news came in, it was not about the reprieve, it was another acceleration. 12 hours, 6 days a week, 9am to 10pm. Weeks passed. Again, the producers had given a termination date on this crunch that again they failed. Throughout this period, the project remained on schedule. The long hours started to take its toll on the team. People grew irritable, and some started to get ill. People dropped out in droves for a couple of days at a time, but then the team seemed to reach an equilibrium again, and they plowed ahead. The manager stopped even talking about the day when the hours would go back to normal. It seems, is the real crunch. The one that the producers of this title so wisely prepared their team for by running them into the ground ahead of time. The current mandatory hours are 9am to 10pm, 7 days a week, with the occasional Saturday evening off for good behavior at 6.30pm. This averages out to an 85 hour work week. Complaints that this once more extended hours combined with the team's existing fatigue would result in a greater number of mistakes made and an even greater amount of wasted energy were ignored. The stress is taking its toll. After a certain number of hours spent working, the ice started to lose focus. After a certain number of weeks with only one day off, fatigue starts to occur and accumulate exponentially. There is a reason why there are two days in a weekend. Bad things happen to one's physical, emotional and mental health if these days are cut short. The team is rapidly beginning to introduce as many flaws as they're removing. And the kicker. For the honor of this treatment, EA salaried employees receive A. 
no overtime, B, no compensation time, C, no additional sick or vacation leave. The time just goes away. You are listening to a fragment out of EA, the human story. If you want to find out more, there is a link in the description of the podcast pointing you directly to the story shared by Yi's spouse and also to other stories which you can find in the comment. This story was needed to be shared to actually understand the conditions through which some of the workers are going in order to produce the games that we enjoy every year. Can you maybe talk a little bit about this article if you're familiar with it? Like, yeah, what this think? one is infamous in the industry because it was probably one of the ones that really started. It, it was probably one of the ones, if not the article, that really uh, started the conversation about crunch within people in the industry and why we needed to stop it. Um, so for those who don't know, it's about the. it's written by the spouse of a developer at EA, um, who is she's basically chronicling all of her i don't know if that actually uh oh no yeah she said she referred to it as her husband she's basically chronicling all of her husband's like dealing with crunch um and how her husband was doing stuff like sleeping at work coming home like in the early hours of the morning not getting any overtime, not getting any compensation time in return for um, working till ridiculous hours. Uh, <laughs> well, there's one thing we say: it was like this person, her husband, would be working uh, till from nine a.m. till ten p.m. and would get get to go home at six thirty p.m. on a Saturday if he had good behaviour. Um, and this yeah people in the industry uh especially in these big triple a studios they read this and we all knew like they all knew that this was um this this was a thing that was happening but uh, this was what really uh especially like games journalists side of it and the game like people outside of the industry uh it's really started the conversation about it and uh yeah, it. Th- this can happen. Is the problem? This was back in two thousand four, which um, the the topology of the games industry back then was a lot different than it is now. Um, mm-hmm. And that, like, it was still, in many ways, it was still uh, merging with the uh, with the the hippie kind of uh, small mm-hmm. studio thing and trying to. EA was like trying to corporatize it and this this was definitely one of the side effects of that um a lot of the people at ea uh if, uh, if i was to give a conjecture on it a lot of people in ea were effectively uh believing that they wanted to be there and that they uh were doing this as a project of passion and with certain projects that that effect became more and more um ingrained in their minds and it became more and more ingrained in the, the minds of the managers how much they could exploit these workers because um, this this is the thing with uh, labor in general and like management and labor is 
if you give if you, if you give the, the managers an inch, they will take a mile. And this like the EA spouse and the story here is one of many many stories like it in the industry, but it is an example of the effect that happens when people um, don't stand up for their time, their hours, and their labor. That's a fair point. I think it's also worth mentioning, uh, there will be a link to this story actually in the description of the podcast, but if you open it and you go straight to the bottom of it, you'll find around, I think, 87 pages of comments. And that was the thing that really shocked me. And as I was going through lots of those comments, there are even more stories. And I think another quite famous one of the time was, uh, let me find it, how to cope. I used to work at Maxis, which I think Maxis was later purchased by EA to yeah. develop uh, The Sims, like they were the initial creators of The Sims. Yeah. And, it, and it seems that it's such a widespread, and I mean back in 2004, I think the gaming industry was, was emerging to what it is to be now. But, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, th- those conversations were not had on the public level that they're, 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 they're being had today. But I think as back in the days, and also as today, there is a lot of need of talking about, as you said, how, how the labor of the people is basically being taken, exploited, and pushed to the limits by the by their employers. I don't want to say in all cases, but in in a good amount of cases, yeah. and that they should stand up actually with a union for this. But I'm also very curious to hear about um, if the labor of the people is exploited. You have said previously that they don't necessarily get any overtime pay when they have to go to crunch. Is anyone in this process and if getting rich, or like everyone is at the end of the day a poor artist? Oh no, or, the, people, the person in the, at the end of the process is the people who like manage the studios and the publishers. They're the ones who are getting rich from it because they're getting effectively free labor for half of the labor of the developers. But, so interesting. No, in the end, like a lot of developers, especially nowadays when they're crunching, they. They they work to the idea that that the, there will be bonuses at the end, um, and like bonuses are very common in the industry. Like my own company, uh, we have a bonus scheme based on quarterly revenue and stuff like that. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's always kind of a trick, if you know <laughs> what I mean. It's a it's something to hold in front in front of developers so they keep going. When in reality, what they tend to get in terms of bonuses is nowhere near what it's worth in the labor that they put in. Interesting. Yeah. Very fascinating. I don't think we often hear those stories about the producers. I think we often hear about labor and unionizing. Mm-hmm. But but would you, would you say that it's quite certain that, you know, a big studio that doesn't necessarily overtime pay their employees, there is still someone that makes very fat cash in there? Oh yeah, there's like the people who have the job title of like director, or mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, yeah, people who have the job of like game director or like lead game designer, and even like the the uh, project leads and stuff. They're they're the ones who are absolutely getting like the the majority of all of the bonus cash, and they do, they're the ones. Yeah, they get the most majority of the bonus cash because their job is to push developers to mm-hmm. do crunch they're the ones who like manage crunch wow oh this is like quite a sad story to be honest I'm, i must be thinking twice about if i want or not to go into the gaming industry 
but if I may, actually, I think you share with me this beautiful blog post by Austin Kelmore, yeah. which is called "The Games Industry is Toxic," and uh, and here he makes a, he makes fantastic points. I don't think there is one central point of the argument because he goes into so many directions, but all have to do at the end of the day with the toxicity of the gaming industry. But I think one aspect we haven't talked about yet is maybe diversity in the gaming industry and cases of, uh, let's say, harassment that arises from the lack of diversity. Hmm. Like, would you say that, I do not know, maybe if in, your, in your experience, but in the industry, you have, what you've seen, have you seen like, or have you heard about cases of harassment being reported or? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> uh, well, as as uh, a union organizer, I, the, the cases of harassment and things like that get pushed straight in my face because a lot of the time I'm the one who has to deal with these things. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, it's it's extremely prevalent in the industry. And just, just like Crunch, it's definitely a, a per-studio basis. Um, and it's all about how certain studios foster a company culture. Um, but, yeah, harassment is... It's common <laughs> and has always been common in the industry. Uh, there's, there's a there was a hashtag on Twitter a while ago for, through like uh, female members of the industry. It was the, I can't remember the actual name of the hashtag. It's something like my story because mm-hmm. every mom, every person, every woman of um, every woman or like gender non-binary person in the industry always has at least one story of how they were harassed. Uh, and yeah, if you speak to any woman in the industry, they'll have they'll have something. They'll have something about how like comments they've made, uh, how they were. <laughs> there was one uh, stuff like how managers tend to go out of their way to not give a female employee a promotion or a raise. Uh, to people commenting on female employees saying like, "Oh, you're only in here as." You're only here because you're a woman, and you, uh, you're you're only here because the company needs a woman to not seem uh, to uh, to seem diverse, I guess. Jesus. The same yeah. quote arguments were here everywhere. Like when yeah. uh, when someone from a minority group or a woman like gets in a or any other like minority group, you know, gets in a position not necessarily of power, there needs to be that person in the room, you know, to remind them that oh, you're here, you know, just because of that. We talk yeah, exactly investigating. That, that that maybe their like train of thought might be completely false. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, a, a friend and union colleague of mine actually writes a report every year um, on the gender pay gap in the industry. Because mm-hmm. uh, here, like? here in the UK, uh, if a company has more than two hundred and fifty employees, they have to uh, report on their. Uh, pay in terms of gender of their employees uh, and various other aspects. And it's always really bad. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Yeah. I think, I think we're laughing out of desperation at this point. It's that we hear that story so, so often and, and we expect something to be changed, but it seems that it's just perpetuated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, apparently, okay, so last year, GameIndustry.biz reported the UK's UK pay gap widened by 3.5%, and Whoa. that's well above the national average uh, 
for example. So the, <laughs> for example, the wage gap at, uh, where is it? The wage gap at Codemasters was, uh, which they make a lot of like racing games and stuff. They're quite big. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something like thirty-two percent. What? <laughs> what? On average, that's... compared to a yeah, that's crazy. I think I think when you when you talk about the gender pay gap, you know, if you just if you just drop it like that, you know, sometimes for someone it might be a bit hard to understand that mm. there is a, there is a bigger component to it, you know, such as the lack of promotion or someone wanting to keep someone in a in an inferior position for a long time, as you just said with management, and that's where the really the big problem arises from. Or also mm. women in the same on the same job, like being paid less just because I do not know they are deemed incompetent or something like that. Yeah, which is which is quite sad at this point. Yeah, no, I, I've had um, instances, uh, especially with the union, uh, where managers will just go out of their way to not pay women the same uh, as men. And even in my own job, it's really interesting to see how certain managers react to women saying the exact same things men say, uh, but uh, compared to what men would say. Interesting. I've, I think I've been stuck in this very progressive bubble for a long time. And when I when I was thinking of like like your comment right now, kind of I don't know, throws me a bit. Uh, I don't know. Just took me very by unexpected because the way I was expecting people not to give promotions was to justify it on an idea that you are not creative enough this month or you are not creative enough this year. Like I don't know X Y Z. So you're actually telling me that some people are going out of the hand to justify it by you are a woman, you won't get promoted. Uh, no, what they'll say is they'll say you're not creating enough, enough this month or something like that. Okay. Uh, but it's always the women who aren't, despite <laughs> all of the evidence to the contrary. Fairly interesting. I don't know. I I hope it will change, but I mean, I I think that the way forward, as you probably think it is as well, is the union. I think that's where it can stand because. Oh once yeah, I mean, it's in in the past uh, two years, the union, our union, has helped many many people with many many instances. There's not a lot I can talk about in terms of mm. uh, specifics because of the nature of how uh, mm-hmm. being a union rep works, but. Uh, yeah, we we we've able I've been able to represent a number of women in uh, uh, grievance cases and whatnot uh, for similar things and been able to get uh, get them solutions basically trying to uh, like the union has been always standing behind uh, people in the industry to try and get justice for stuff like this. Well, I think that's needed, but I'm also very curious when it comes. Uh, let's say to. Uh, racial groups and ethnic groups if you have to face those with those in the industry is there like discrimination what that you've encountered with the union uh i can't speak for anything specific that happened in the union uh but i i know full well like from speaking to people of color in the industry uh mm-hmm. how they say that it's been very very difficult for them a lot of the time to get jobs uh to get uh, to uh, find jobs and to um, not feel discriminated against, even slight, like even when it comes to like even slight things. Uh, the games industries, oh, I think it was like Yuki, which is an industry body uh, in the UK. They uh, 
published a report quite recently and found that there was only there was only like only like five percent of the industry was people of color, uh, which I don't even know if it's five percent. I think it might be even be lower. Yeah, I think I remember I remember in the blog post by Kelmore, I think he was saying something like close to three percent. Yeah, it's very low usually. Uh, yeah, I I can't exactly. Yeah, it's something ridiculously low. Oh. Mm. Uh, yeah, they found this year actually ten percent of people working in the industry are people of color. This is slightly higher. Uh, however, it's lower than much lower than the equivalent figure is for every other industry, basically. Well, interesting. Well, would this be because of the lack of jobs? Uh, I mean, right now I'm trying just to to get a better understanding of it. Or is it actually that there are certain prejudices against some people of color that would want to enter the industry? Well, it would not. It wouldn't be because of the lack of jobs. Jobs because this is um, like uh, what's the word? This is proportional to everything else. So it, yeah, it's very much. It's very likely discrimination. Very likely mm-hmm. that, like, yeah, people of color just aren't doing. Uh, they they aren't going down the paths to uh, be able to get like get the opportunities to. Um, the the report also found that like the the vast majority of people working in the UK games industry were people who went to private schools. Uh, well, yeah, and it was very unlike unusual to have someone of a working class background uh, in those positions. Interesting. Yeah. So the problem so the problem is way bigger than just the moment when someone knocks at the gate at the door of a gaming company and asks, "Hey, do I have a job?" It has to do a lot with maybe the behavior and the social norms they've inherited and developed mm. in the past. Yeah. Such as the school, the circles they were hanging out in. But also talking of that, I'm very curious to hear about, uh, maybe about your experience or maybe in general as well about getting a job in the gaming industry. Is there a certain type of behavior you might have to perform? Or is there like only the portfolio that can, that can get you forward? And is that an enough solid foot in the door? Um, it depends. The industry is, uh, uh, I think, I think it's a lot like a lot of other big tech industries. It's very, it's very big on the portfolio. Having a good portfolio is like key to getting at least your first job in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just connections in general. It's very hard to break in. They call it breaking into the games industry. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get your first job, because it's really hard. It's, it's, comparatively very easy to go between jobs in the gaming industry than it is to get your first one because a lot of jobs come from prior experience it's very hard to get an entry-level position um like entry like industry doesn't like entry-level positions because it's much easier to hire someone who actually already has experience it's it's not um a profitable investment i guess you could say Mm -hmm. to gamble on somebody who has never worked in the industry before so it's, mm-hmm. companies aren't they, they don't like to do it which is why we get into the situation where um very few people stay in the games industry um after too long it's mostly uh most of the gaming industry is very much uh people who have been in it for a while who haven't left yet who just go between different studios um 
and yeah, in terms of like being able to get a job, it's usually it's all it's all down to the portfolio. It's all down to who you know and like where to apply. It's uh, like the interview process tends to involve stuff like you have to do tests, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's it's so it, you're actually so you're actually telling me that there is this idea that you haven't left yet of the game out of the gaming industry so there is a tendency of people leaving the industry for good after a certain amount of years yeah uh it's a it's a common trope um i believe austin talks about it in his blog post um yeah. but a lot of people because of crunch especially uh a lot of people tend to leave the gaming industry i spoke to a software developer who lived in um he was a Labour Party councillor, actually, in North London. Um, and he wanted to ask me, actually, about uh, uh, organising the organising work I'd done because he wanted to organise for tech. And we were talking about salaries, and he was talking about how in just commercial software, programmers make so much more than game, <laughs> game programmers. Despite the fact that game programming is arguably a lot harder. Uh, but... and. But yeah, a lot of programmers just move on to like commercial software. A lot of artists just move on to like film and TV and stuff because it's for the skills we have. A lot of the time, uh, the pay and the amount of overtime that we're required to do isn't mm-hmm. really worth it, and we can get a much better deal in other industries, which reinforces this issue where like the vast majority of game developers are only here because we want to be. Okay, that's a, that's a very fair point. I think we're approaching uh, the end of this, uh, and I would like to maybe discuss two very quick points. One of them is uh, related to the Western world. I think in the by Western world, I mean, I would say Europe and the US, since these are the countries I'm familiar with. There's a huge tendency of thinking of gaming in terms of consoles and PC. There is a long war between PlayStation and Xbox. Now the Switch has entered the market. Well, I was actually reading about China, and the situation looks completely different down there. It's mm-hmm. like, it's all about mobile, mostly. Mobile gaming with lots of transactions. What do you think of that? Do you think that will be also the future for Western, the Western world? Or where, where uh, are you there? Well, somebody who works in mobile gaming with lots of transactions, uh, <laughs> I hope not, because I, <laughs> okay. I don't think the Western world is... I, I think a lot of the time it's gating on the, the idea of hardware. And I think a lot... I think the issue in China is mobile hardware is just a lot easier to come by, and like mm-hmm. even for especially uh, for like poorer places, like the game I work on, for example, we have hundred, we have like a million daily active users, and a lot of those are in like South America and stuff like that, and, like places like absolutely you wouldn't consider to be rich places. But I would actually argue that um, as countries develop, it will be more it. I, I think a lot of uh, stuff in like mobile tends to break people into the idea of gaming, um, mm-hmm. and I think gaming will only be will always just be what people have access to. And I I would say that with the ideas of like game streaming, like um, mm-hmm. Stadia and whatever it is Amazon is doing, I think that might actually. I think that will be the biggest driver in changing the the layout of the of the industry because I think it will be like console level games will be available to much 
many, many more people with less um, uh, less expensive hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was chatting actually to a colleague of mine last week about just exactly that and how we think it's going to make it will do to games what Netflix did to TV. If you know what I mean. Interesting point. Very uh, fascinating point. But yeah, I, I I'd say I'm mobile actually... is going to. I don't think mobile is going to increase beyond what it already has in the West or yeah. anywhere, to be honest. Uh, and I would say just, I, I would say more in-depth things are going to, like more complex games are going to become more and more available to more people. Definitely. It seems like cloud gaming is uh, is the future and it's here to stay. I'm an, I'm a user of Google, of Google Stadia. I've, I think mm-hmm. I bought it when it launched uh, with the desire of doing some sociological research on it. Uh, that's the way I bullshit the actions just because <laughs> I never played Destiny in my life. And yeah. I, I was impressed. I was definitely impressed. And I'm telling you, I do not own a gaming PC. I only got a PlayStation 4 very recently to actually play some of the titles and catch up on those good games, you know, like The Last of Us, God of War, and so on and so forth. But Stadia was able to offer me what I was not able to get, you know, because... Yeah, exactly. I think getting, you know, the the gaming rig that would cost, like, what, a thousand or closer to a thousand dollars to play Destiny to that quality was unachievable. Yeah. But I paid 100 bucks, they gave him the controller, I plugged it into my computer at work uh, while I was working at the library, and here I was in Destiny, like, almost yeah. like 1080p or something quality like that. And that mm-hmm. definitely changed uh, the speech around it. But I'm very curious to hear as, as a last comment, maybe some recommendations for games for uh, for the people that are listening. What's something that you think that someone that's passionate about games should play? Or is like a mandatory video oh. game that you want to play? Uh, <laughs> I know it's a tough question. Someone who's passionate about games in general. Oh, man. Gaming is such a wide <laughs> uh, thing. Um I'm trying to think what I've I recently been playing. I've recently been playing uh, Doom Eternal uh, and like the, wow. the, the the latest DLC for that. Um, honestly, if you want a if you want an example of like really tight and like um, something that's hyper hyper focused game design is what I would just sort of call it. That is a really good example of a game where it puts you in a very specific mindset. Uh, mm-hmm. Of uh, like oh yeah I don't know it, it does something to your mind that mm-hmm. I could go into but I would start talking about the academics of game designs a bit uh, <laughs> but yeah I've I'm playing that I recently I've playing a lot of Fall Guys which I'm really into oh, yeah. um, I think that's also a really good example of a game where it uses um, uh, it uses a social aspect, but not really. It generates gameplay through um, through other players, but it doesn't actually require socialization with any of those other players. If that makes sense. That makes uh, it, yeah, it it's addictive. Uh, it's very much addictive. It it takes a lot of design lineages from mobile games in many many respects, and it it, um, it creates this situation where you can play it just do one game and then go away if you have say 15 minutes to spare and it perfectly encapsulates that by that time <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> that um and that's a lot a lot of mobile games have been doing for years like it's they try to 
they try to say, okay, if a, if a person has uh, 15 minutes to spare, what can we do to capture them for 15 minutes and make them want to come into our game for 15 minutes? And Fall Guys yeah, fully, fully did that. Uh, they fully uh, captured that moment for me. I felt the same way. I was actually on, on your comment, uh, what I was actually playing recently, and I would recommend anyone to play, I think is GTA 5. I think a, a person must must finish GTA 5 in their lifetime at least once. Because, oh, yeah, definitely. Because unlike Fall Guys, this game, I think, keeps you trapped for hours. You know, maybe oh, Fall yeah, Guys, there's, it's, different, there's different games that do different things. Like, definitely. I'm a big fan of the Bethesda RPGs, like uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Elder Scrolls and Fallout. Uh, how much time have I put in Fallout New Vegas? Can you let's, uh, let's get let's get a number? And what's it interesting, is, if I'm not mistaken, that's also a criticism of capitalism. Fallout New Vegas. Oh yeah, Josh Sawyer, the main developer, the main designer of it, is a huge anti-capitalist. He uh, he's a uh, he's a what is it? Democratic Socialist of America member and stuff like that. Yeah, I've got 394.8 hours in Fallout. Wow. A, game that, a game that only takes about 20 hours to finish. <laughs> so I, I think this is, definitely, this is the problem with all of us trying to explore the vast dimensions of video games. But oh, like, if, you want, not, if you want a really good anti-capitalist game, you should play Night in the Woods. Night in the Woods. I must recommend this to my people at Boron Labor Alliance since we're trying to fight the system bit by bit. And maybe gaming is one way in which we should fight the system. Oh, I would absolutely recommend it. Yeah, probably hasn't been exploited yet to its fullest. <laughs> but Dave, but uh, thank you so much for this conversation. I hope we can continue the conversation to maybe even discuss tactics and discuss such ideas of addiction, you know, in the gaming industry and maybe even go further. I think the conversation right now has just been started. I think there's so much more. There is Gamergate, which we haven't addressed yet. There is the toxic yeah. culture of streaming, which we haven't addressed yet, I think, as well. And there is the idea of the simp, which, which I, I'm quite, I'm quite like, fascinated by. Yeah, I have to say I'm quite fascinated by it. I was watching like Twitch streamers capitalizing on this idea of the simp and using it for profit. And I'm very curious what's actually going to do to the minds of the boys of the next generation. Oh, man. <laughs> I know, I put a lot on your plate, but I hope you can, jo you can join us another time, honestly. It was yes, lovely definitely. I'd love to. I'd love if I can do. Thank you, Doug. I hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Before we depart, I would like to leave you with some words from Austin Kelmore. And he says, if you're a cis white man in the games industry, I need you to educate yourself and use your voice to stand up against the toxicity in our industry. Why you? Why did I single out cis white men, including myself? Because we're the majority of game developers, we're the majority of management and leadership, we're paid more than everyone else, we're the most likely to be rehired by someone else if we're let go, and we're the least affected by the toxicity since so much of it is focused at people of color and white women. I'm not going to ask those not most marginalized by the toxicity to fix the problems that we created. Educate yourself on the harms of the toxicity in our industry and then use your voice to push back. Not just to your coworkers or manager, but also in large meetings. Stand up for others who haven't found their voices yet or don't feel comfortable using it. It's going to be really strange speaking up at first, but it gets easier the more you do it.
As Kim Creighton always says, cause a scene and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Thank you so much. <laughs>